Hey everybody, Pastor Worth here. Welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. If you are new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. Just a quick few calendar reminders before we begin today. Uh, first, we had a great time last Monday hearing from Craig and Allison Fowler, our missionaries that we support who are working in Ethiopia, planting churches, uh, digging water wells. And we want to let you know that we filmed that event and we're going to post it to the church website pretty soon, so you're going to want to check that out. Second, for all you middle schoolers out there, our next middle school student gathering is this coming Wednesday evening, November 17th at 6 p.m. in the youth room. Just a reminder, there's free dinner, games, good time with friends. Remember, for a limited time, and if you like free stuff, if you bring a friend to the gathering, you and your friend receive a gift certificate. Next... If you've just discovered our church, welcome. Uh, we do things a bit differently. Most weeks we meet in homes at Kinfolk Groups, and once a month we gather at our church campus right here at 4400 42nd Avenue Southwest in West Seattle, just one block east of Hotwire Cafe. Uh, masks are required at all times for our Kinfolk Groups and in-person worship gatherings. At our Kinfolk Groups, we gather to pray, eat, watch and discuss this message, and share in communion together. Some of these groups meet at 10 a.m., others at 11 a.m., uh, and one even meets right here in our social hall on the campus uh, each week on Sunday mornings. Our next all-church in-person gathering in the worship center on our church campus is this next Sunday, November 21st at 10 a.m. And this is also the day of our next warm weather gear and coat drive for West Seattle Food Bank. Don't forget to go through your closet and bring some coats on November 21st. We hope to see you there. Last but not least, for you folks watching on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button as well as hit the like icon below for notifications. This will really help our channel out. Okay, let's get back to it. We left off last week with this chart. We're talking about growing in Christ. And by necessity, that means we are talking about maturity. We asked the question last week, what are we using to define our spiritual experience? Is it just coming to church once a week and reading our Bible, or is it more? And the answer, of course, is yes, it's a lot more. And we asked, what is your definition of spiritual maturity? This is really important because this is what it comes down to. Because I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people in the church who come and tell me, I'm just not growing. I'm not being fed. And this statement, I have to admit, is like the bane of all pastors everywhere on the planet. And my question is, really? Is that what it really is? And what do you mean by that? Do you mean that you haven't cognitively learned anything new? Like you haven't learned some new bit of information about the Bible or about Jesus that makes you feel like you learned something? Uh, I think that it actually what most people do mean when they say that is something different. If you want to go deeper, then what's truly gnawing at people's souls is that they don't have the skill set or the character to be like Jesus. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They can recite chapter and verse, but their life doesn't look or feel or corroborate what they know in their head. They are looking to grow in character and skills. Maybe that's you. And they seem to be lacking this because of the obvious, which is this. Growing takes hard work. It takes intentionality and follow through and practice. And it also means taking things out of your life that prohibit and prevent and stunt your growth. You cannot microwave discipleship. Like you can't you can't take a blue pill or a red pill or even show up to worship each week and that's all you do because let's face it, that's what most Christians do. They show up to worship for an hour once a week and then they expect to really truly grow in Christ. So what does it mean when Christians say they aren't growing or being fed? 
I'll tell you what I think it means. It does not mean blaming your preacher or your pastor or your church for not giving you some kind of special nugget or insight that your need for intellectual stimuli has to have to be satiated. Your faith and belief in Jesus don't automatically make you grow to be more like him. Just because you believe in your heart and mind that he is who he says he was and that he defeated death and saved you from your sins. Your practices that show how you demonstrate your faith and live it out are what shape you to be more like Jesus. Here's a bumper sticker statement for all you lifelong Christians out there. It is not belief than practice. Practices are belief. Let's illustrate this hard reality in some uncomfortable ways just for a second. If you've been a Christian for, for a few years and you've switched between several churches in your community because you weren't being fed or because the next youth group down the road looked more exciting for your kids or they had a, a bigger, better, more, more uh, flashy children's ministry, then shifting the blame to the previous church or pastor for your choices is not really being real. You're not being real to yourself. And side note, kind of along with a warning, if you're a parent watching this, and even if you're not, because you're not off the hook if you don't have kids, if you're part of a church, then this applies to you as kind of a surrogate parent for other people's kids as well. But you're not going to like what I say next on the kids thing. Hopping to a different church because they've got more of kind of like a Disneyland-esque stuff in their children's ministry and youth group, more fun stuff, more trips, more, more pre-college rave prep. I mean, that is not the answer to your kids knowing and loving God and their life turning out okay or the way you want it to. If you are a Christian parent, you are the one who is primarily responsible for your kid's spiritual upbringing and growth. The church should help you with that. And the best way they should help you with that is by teaching you how to disciple your kids. So if your, if your church isn't doing that, then you can get on their case for sure. But you can't outsource your sp kid's spiritual development in Christ for forever like you would with piano lessons or dropping them off at football practice for the coach to teach them everything. That's not the way it works. At some point, you are in charge. Your spiritual growth and your input into your kid's life is what will impact them the most. So I get it. Like If your kid doesn't turn out the way you want or makes poor decisions as, as an adult that don't line up with your hopes and dreams and expectations for following Jesus, but you, quote-unquote, did everything you could or did everything you were supposed to by taking your kids to the best children's ministry or youth group, it's easy then to kind of shift the blame from yourself to the church at that point, like the church didn't do right by my kid. But in reality, the reality is that maybe your church did not disciple you to actually learn the character and skill set that Jesus had in your life. And then what happens is your kid looked at you making them go to church because it would make them be good. And then they don't see you living it out. They don't see you doing any habitual practices to follow the way of Jesus in your own life. And then, well, you know, you do the math. And here's the thing. This goes for me too. I'm acutely aware of what I'm saying and how it applies to me as well. And warnings like this, they hurt, but they also serve as a wake-up call. And I'm fine if you want to be mad at me for saying all this. That's fine or going on. I'm just going to dismiss that. The reason I have said all this is that hopefully it will cause you to stop and consider the part you have to play in the hard work of being a disciple of Jesus. You have to take ownership of the fact that at some point, kind of like as the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 5, at some point, you got to switch from drinking milk to eating solid food. At some point, you realize you have to mature. And to mature, you have to engage. And to engage, you have to work at it. If you take your maturity in Christ seriously, then you will begin to grow. 
And so last week, we left off with this diagram that shows Jesus' definition of spiritual growth. And all the scriptures that we used last week are in the background of what I'm going to say today in today's message. So if you haven't listened or watched to that, I encourage you to do so. But the main scripture comes from Matthew 22. It's where Jesus gives us this great commandment where he tells us to love God and to love others. And everything hinges on those two. That's the focus for today. And it's where we get this diagram. And so I said last week that maturity is an increased depth in your capacity to have relationship with other people and relationship with God. And I said, it's an increased depth, but not an increased width. And I said that because this diagram does not mean that uh, the Holy Spirit is gonna increase your capacity for you to have relationship with other people from having, you know, kind of the ability to deal with, say, maybe three to five people, and then he's gonna increase it so you can deal with 50 people. All you introverts out there just let out a big sigh of relief, I think. That's not what this diagram is saying. What this diagram is saying is that as you mature spiritually, the energy or the capacity you have relationally will enable you to go deeper with the people that you are in relationship with. So you stay in your bandwidth of the number of relationships you can handle, but you're able to go deeper in those relationships. And everyone has an energy level or a capacity when it comes to relationships, a relational capacity level, a threshold for the the energy that you can handle in terms of the number of relationships you can have. So some of you can handle a few people, others of you can handle more. And this is not an excuse to stay away from people, like I only can handle this many, so I'm gonna stay away. And at the same time, it's not an excuse to hide within groups. I'm gonna be with a bunch of people and never deal with myself. But we have a reality that we can only manage a certain number of relationships well. Everyone has a different number that they land on and it can fluctuate as well. And what I mean by that is, so like if you get to one side or the other of that line on the graph, it may be too much for you. For example, let's say my relational energy level is 10 and I can manage 10 or maybe eight relationships well. Maybe it's more or less for you, I I don't know. But then you have a parent or a friend maybe pass away or someone you love gets a cancer diagnosis or someone at work um, fires you or you know, someone else gets fired and you have more of the load or something like that. I remember more than a few times when Beth and I made plans to hang out with some friends and then something happened that day or earlier in the week that just brought our capacity to have a real relationship with others just way down, maybe sometimes a lot, maybe just a few notches. More than once we've been in the car on our way to meet with people and realize we need to stop and pause and and kind of like hit the reevaluate button. And we've even literally been outside some friend's house, parked in the car at the curb, and then called them on the cell phone and said, can we get a rain check? Because we just had a really hard day. And then they understood that and it was fine. Circumstances can change the relational capacity level that you have and it can fluctuate. And that's not bad, it's not evil. It's just a reality to be aware of. It's only bad, I think, when you know you can handle like eight relationships in a healthy way, but you choose to be lazy and you only engage in like one or two or three. That's when it becomes a real issue. So we have this bandwidth of energy that we can, that we have to give and we can all get increased depth, but we can only manage so many relationships at a time. And this Venn diagram of spiritual maturity, this lens that Jesus gives us, it makes people that have a low spiritual energy kind of feel bad sometimes, but I don't want you to feel bad. Just use the relational energy that you have correctly. Think about Jesus himself. What was his level in terms of this diagram? Well, he had 12. And I think it's helpful to stop and think about that for just a second. He had 12 main relationships and he's Jesus and you're not. 
So if you think you can handle 30 or 40 or 50, maybe just pause and think about that for a moment. I mean, Jesus, he had his mom uh, and he had other friends like Lazarus. Uh, the group he traveled around in num- with, like, you know, numbered 72 plus. We spent most of his focused time with the 12 disciples, pouring his life into them. And even with the 12, he spent more time uh, with a few of them, with Peter, James, and John, than he did with the others. So beyond all this, we have these values for our church. Be like Jesus, do this together for the sake of others with generosity. And attached to that framework We've, we've added on this process for spiritual maturity. It's the same diagram, but it looks like this when you overlay it on the grid, uh, when you overlay this other pattern over the grid from before, where you have an infant, a child, a young adult, and a parent. And we don't say spiritual adult because a parent has children. And at the end of the day, you, we believe that you're not spiritually mature until you are uh, discipling somebody else. What I want you to understand from looking at this graph is that the spiritual infant is not really good at either thing on the access. Uh, They they don't know how to do these things. They are trying, and that's really good that they're trying, but they don't yet know how 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 to do the love God and love others well thing. The spiritual child really has the capacity to veer off in one direction or the other. Like, they may have the capacity to have relationship with tons of people on the lower access, but their spiritual life maybe a shambles on the vertical axis or big comedy of errors. It can especially be a catastrophe because they can be trying to disciple another person and because they don't know any better, it's like the blind leading the blind and it can be like walking off a cliff spiritually. But hey, they're awesome with being out there with people and loving them. But at best, it, leads, it can lead to minor screw-ups and at worst, it can lead to a tragedy and a world of hurt for other people because they don't, know, they don't have this, the vertical axis dialed in yet. On the other axis of the diagram, you can have spiritual children who are studying the Word of God and they're all about that and they're like, hey, if you don't do this, then I don't care about you at all. But maybe, maybe that's a bit harsh. In fact, while you're, while, while you're up on the I'm going to be like God high horse axis or you're lording it over others and telling them they're sinners, maybe you're the one who is in sin. Maybe sometimes Bible study leads us to a place that isn't very spiritual at all. In fact, I found this to be massively, massively kind of prevalent in the church over the years because spiritual maturity doesn't come with age. You can have people who've been in church their whole life and they've done, gone to all kinds of Bible studies, but they're jerks, like we said last week. True spiritual maturity is the marriage of these two axes. What's important to figure out is to learn where you are on this graph. Where are you? Where am I? And then how do I deal with this for myself? Like if I find myself always on the vertical axis, how do I intentionally put specific practices and rhythms in my life that lead me toward more relational environments in a a place that's healthy and good with other people, both for me and for them? If you're bent towards this vertical axis or study or Sunday-centric philosophies of how church should be, and for our church, if you're, that means like if you're not in a kinfolk group, like down over here, on this axis, then you need to get in one, like now. If, you, if you're on the relational side and you love being with people and hanging out and then somebody asks you for advice on how to deal with a certain issue and it needs more of this on your life and your response is like, just do whatever's in your heart, you know? Like, no, don't do that, absolutely not. What does the Word of God say about that particular question they are asking you? And if you don't know, then stop trying to give an answer to them. Tell them you don't know and try to find somebody who does know. 
because you could be causing a lot of pain and damage to that other person. Sure, love that person, but don't try to give biblical insight or counsel or advice when you really don't have a clue. And, it, and it's really just worldly advice that you're giving. We need to learn what the Bible says. And if you're that relational person, maybe the challenge and invitation for you is to, is to be studying the word more. Like not just listening to a sermon once a week or going to church once a week, but figuring out how to study, figuring out how to study and then doing it. Usually this is best if you do it with somebody else or with a group of people, like what we illustrated before about Jesus and his group. In fact, that's how Jesus did it with his group of disciples. He was at the top right of the diagram and he was teaching, demonstrating, observing, evaluating, and encouraging his learners. And then he'd get out of the way and he'd watch them practice and they would make mistakes. And he'd say, here's how you course correct, do it again. That's what practice is. And that's what we're talking about here, practice, not just sitting around and learning more stuff to know in our heads because that doesn't work. Social scientists have given us observable data about teaching something to someone so that they can actually do it. And here's what they found out. Check this graph out right here. So for example, just going to church doesn't cut it and it never has. Just hearing a sermon won't by some sort of spiritual osmosis process just make you more like Jesus automatically. Even if it's a brilliant three-point sermon with great application points, because you will likely never do them. It won't, you won't retain it. Even a sermon like this with audio, visual, and a bit of demonstration is basically like a 25 to 30% retention rate of effectiveness. So Jesus's method in a small group was, I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I watch. In other words, everything he hit, he hit everything on every level on that learning pyramid and then repeat it as it applies to all kinds of different spiritual disciplines of the spiritual life along the, of, along the axes of loving God and loving people. Jesus takes them from being incompetent infants to somewhat competent children to growing young adults and then to competent parents who excel in the character and attributes of godliness. And that is what we're after. At the end of the day, our mission is to go into all the world and make disciples who can do that process, who can repeat that process with excellence and expertise. This is the mission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The local ministry of our church and of every church should pivot out of this great commandment from Matthew 22 that we quoted earlier, and then it should orient around this great commission. The great commandment was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and the great, or your heart, soul, and mind. Your great commission is, go and make disciples. In other words, our practice, the lever by which we do what we know is love and our vision is discipleship. And the challenge for you is this, and for every one of us, in every disciple-making relationship, there are going to be three parts. There's your part, which we call my part, which means you have to show up. You have to be invested and willing to risk in the relationship. You have to be learning how to be like Jesus yourself. And if you do this, then you can help teach others. Because you have something to give. You have something to offer. You can't give what you don't have. And you can't take somebody where you haven't been. So that's what I mean by your part. Secondly, then, there's their part. The, uh, maybe you're in this position, so you can see how the pronouns change. But the other party has, has to be willing to show up, too. They have to be willing to be invested. So if I'm investing someone else, and investing in discipling someone else, if I ask them to read a passage and meditate on that for a week, 
and memorize it or something, they ought to be willing to do that. If I ask them to do that and they immediately say no, then it doesn't work. If they say yes and then they don't do it, then it doesn't work. If so, if you were doing that with me, then I would say, we're done here after a very short period of time. I am not wasting my time. And in case you haven't heard that before, then you missed Jesus' modus operandi in the Gospels. He doesn't waste his time with people who will not toe the line when it comes to imitating him. He's like, if you want to follow me, follow me. Follow me or don't follow me. Have follow through. So if you aren't doing your part, then I won't waste my time or yours. You can't live vicariously through my spiritual experience. I love what Dallas Willard has to say about this. He has this excellent little definition for Christians who try to live this way, for Christians whose spiritual lives are frankly limited to going to church for an hour once a week. And let's be honest, for most Christians these days, it's maybe once an hour, for an hour once a month. Dallas Willard calls people like that vampire Christians. His definition of a vampire Christian is one who essentially says this to Jesus. I'd like a little of your blood, please, Jesus, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll just see you in heaven. I mean, look, this is a crystal clear reality. You can't live vicariously through my spirituality and I can't live through yours. There's my part and I have to be willing to do my part. And then there's their part and they have to be willing to do their part. The third part is that God does his part. And I want you to be set straight on something. It's not your job to convict the world of sin. That is the Holy Spirit's job. And and you will not do a good job when you try to do the Holy Spirit's job. So when you go out to make people feel bad, that's like really not discipleship. When you got to make people feel bad that they're doing the wrong thing, you're not really gonna succeed because you're not the Holy Spirit and it's not your job either to save the world. That's Jesus's job. And he does it better than you or me. It's also not your job to control the world. God does that. He holds it all together. You can't do his part. And that honestly drives me crazy because I want to do all those things. I want to do that with my kids. I want, I want to convince them and convict them of when they're doing wrong and show them how to do right. And I want to control them and I want to save them too. But ultimately, I can't do any of those things, right? Because I'm not God. But I can do my part. I can try to be like Jesus and become mature and to circle back to what we talked about way at the beginning of this, hopefully my kids will see that and they will follow suit. Today, what I want to leave you with, the application part, if you will, is a challenge. Will you accept the challenge to do your part, to do my part, the my part of the discipleship paradigm? You can't do someone else's part. You can't do God's part. You can only do your part. Will you do your part to do the very best to your ability to do your part in following Jesus? And I want to leave you with just a couple more implications after that challenge. The first one is this. God has invited us to partner with him in helping followers of Jesus become mature. He's invited you to partner with him in helping followers of Jesus become mature. So if you're listening to this and you're like, What do I need to do for me? There's part of that that you do need to do, but maybe just stop and start thinking for a minute. What can I do to serve other people that inspires them towards spiritual maturity? And that might lead to what you need to do in you next to get to that place. Next, each person has a responsibility to own up to wherever he or she is or wherever he or she needs to be. Each one of us has a responsibility to own that reality. 
Am I too focused on learning and not focused enough on loving? Or am I too focused on loving and not focused enough on learning? Um, I mean, that's, that's the reality we have to face. If you know that you're not where you need to be, there is not a silver bullet that will take the responsibility you have to change it. Only you can change it. That's the lesson. You can't shift blame for your spiritual growth indefinitely. Like, I get it if you're brand new and following Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. There's some people need to invest in you. But if you've been following Jesus for a year or more, for years and years, there's some part of that that depends on others. But you also have to take responsibility for yourself. You do in other parts of your life, so why don't you do it in this? Like, if you're overweight and you keep eating more than you should and not exercising enough, is that someone else's fault? No. You can't keep blaming others for why you don't like where you are. You must take personal responsibility for where you are at. If you don't like where you're at spiritually, you're the only one who has the power to change it. And it might be to ask for other help, for someone to invest in you and disciple you. The last implication is this. I must be available to serve and love and lead others to maturity in their faith while still being responsible for my own growth. This is the combination, the marriage of, of the two axes on the diagram. Love God and love others well. And in order to do that, I want to get to the place where I'm available to serve, love, and lead others to maturity in their faith while still being responsible for my own growth. Well, I know we talk about it a lot, and we're going to get into it next week and put even more handholds on this uh, for how to mature in Christ and actually grow in our spiritual formation. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.